When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy, risk-free, and most of all, enjoyable. Get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice when you go to warbyparker.com slash cultural. And the Culture Gab Fest is also brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Binocular G Edition. It's Wednesday, September 9th, 2015, and on today's program, we're going to talk about the state of the television ecosystem in 2015. Is it true, as a network head complained at a recent press conference, that we've reached hashtag peak TV? We'll also talk about the new IFC mockumentary comedy series, Documentary Now, starring Fred Armisen and Bill Hader. And finally, we'll discuss the new Google logo. After more than 15 years, the search engine that was essential in creating the Internet as we know it has changed the look of their homepage and scattered their serifs to the wind. We'll talk about that redesign and about what a difference a font makes. And in the absence of both Julia and Steve, Julia is off in Italy Instagramming olive trees and having a great time. And Steve, I think, has, has retired to his castle for his annual seaweed wrap or something of the sort. So instead, I'm joined today by Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic. Hey, Willa. Hey. And by longtime Slate contributor, friend of the Gab Fest, Seth Stevenson. Hey, Seth. Hi, Dana. All right, so let's dig into our first topic, which is peak TV. So, Willa, I warn you, I'm going to turn to you first. So, recently at a meeting of the Television Critics Association, which is a chance for network heads and stars and people who write on TV to all get together and preview the next year's shows, John Landgraf, who's the CEO of FX Networks, made a comment that has caused some bubbles in the TV critic sphere. He essentially said, we have so much TV on at this point that no one can keep up with it. We have reached, and I quote, peak TV, and from here things can only go downhill, perhaps, Specifically, the statistic he cited was that there were 370 new scripted shows last year. Is that right, Right, Willa? and there's going to be over 400 this coming year. And so, I mean, I think he was speaking to a sense that, you know, television is, is ramping up its production of scripted shows, that they're getting better and better, that they're airing in more and more modalities, and, you know, they're bingeable on Netflix or Amazon, or they're, you know, popping up on networks you might not expect to see them. And uh, for John Langraff, for understandable reasons, because he's trying to keep people focused on his network, this is a problem. But I wanted to talk to you, Willa about whether you perceive it as a problem and why has the reaction been so intense to this comment? Great. I have a lot of very strong TV critic-centric responses to this, so I hope, Dana and Seth, you will pull me back from the weeds when I get way too deep into them. But I think the way you just framed that is perfect because John Langraff, who is a very bright, very 
deep thinking sort of executive. He has this reputation for that. If you ever talk to him on the phone, he'll mention Machiavelli, you know, that sort of guy. Uh, <laughs> but he, does he rule by fear or love? <laughs> right. Well, he's trying to rule by love, but he worries that other people are, are ruling by fear, I think. So he is very thoughtful about how he's going to keep his shows sort of in the center of the conversation. And I think that critics are similarly thoughtful about what shows become cultural touchstones and also are, of course, inundated in television in a way I think that regular viewers are not. So what to regular people is like the best buffet you've ever been to, you know, with 400 TV shows that you get to choose from is for TV critics like a forced march through the buffet line, right, where you have to eat at every station. Those things like look really different depending on how much you have to consume. So from my perspective about this whole sort of peak TV question, there is obviously a ton of television and a ton of it is good and a ton of it is worse. You know, like there's always been bad TV. There continues to be bad TV. And whether or not you can find the stuff, I think, is a question that's of really sort of narrow interest. It's it's for executives and critics and super watchers, of which there are more and more all the time. But I think for most people, it's just like, oh, there's a lot of good TV. And it just sort of makes TV more like music and books, where it's not possible to be conversant in all of them, right? And you have to find people you trust to direct you to the stuff that you like, whether it's your friends or critics or brands, you know. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a new thing. Was it findability that, that Landgraf was bemoaning, essentially? Yeah, he, he was actually bemoaning findability. He was basically saying there's so much noise that it's increasingly hard for shows, even really good shows, to find their audience in a timely fashion. I mean, the one thing that is interesting to me that sort of hasn't been discussed is the financial aspect of this, which, you know, everyone is always talking about how ratings are going down, and they obviously are. So, There's 400 shows. There can't be enough talent to make all those shows is one of the problems. There can't be enough eyeballs to watch all those shows. You know, audiences are fragmenting. But Adam Davidson wrote this piece for The New York Times Magazine now two or three years ago called The Mad Men Miracle. And it was basically about how Mad Men was making all of this money for AMC because all of these cable networks can charge the people that give us cable, like Comcast and Time Warner, fees for carrying their network. But basically, that's where they make a huge portion of their money. And the reason that I... You know, Landgraf predicted that it, there'll be a contraction, that in two or three years, they're gonna co- the number of scripted TV shows is going to come down. But because networks still make so much money on the chance that they have a hit, just if they have a show that even, like Unreal or Mr. Robot this year, which was on Lifetime in USA, USA and Lifetime, because of the passion for those shows, actually gets to charge the cable providers more per viewer. And that's actually how they're making a ton of their money. So the fact that the audience for everything is kind of shrinking and maybe your show doesn't hit in the way you want to, I'm not sure it's going to keep networks from trying to make shows that are really buzzy. It sounds a little like book publishing where you make a lot of bets on on projects and you know that most of them are going to fail, but it's okay because if just one or two hit big, then that justifies the entire enterprise. It sounds a little more Yeah, like absolutely. That. I mean, I remember not too many years ago when we thought scripted television was over, right? <laughs> we thought reality television had taken over because it was so much cheaper to do reality TV and reality TV was doing gangbusters ratings. And, you know, I was scared that scripted TV was over because I'm not a big reality TV fan for the most part. And, and, and I remember thinking, oh, 
oh no, it's going to be just a wasteland of reality TV forever. And that's clearly not the case. My question for you, Will, is so with all, you know, 400 shows now, you would think one of the benefits would be a much wider range of, of characters and social strata and milieu. And, and is that the case or is it still 400 shows that are all about the same kind of people? Well, so this is one of those questions also that we have like just this really small sample size of the last couple of years. And so from just based on the last couple of years, it has actually been good for more diverse television, you know, with people of color being in shows or, you know, the transgender experience or sort of a wide variety of different kinds of lifestyles, American lifestyles. It's also just been a good time for different genres. Like there used to be this sort of fetishization of the antihero show, like the best shows were only about some angry guy who was doing something wrong and mistreating everybody. And you still like wanted to sleep with him anyway or whatever. Maybe you did not want to sleep with him. I don't (laughs) uh, suggest that everyone has a crush on Stringer Bell. But like that has moved on. And the best shows on TV are not in that vein. You know, they're actually much, much more female centric. They're much more alive to questions of race and difference. So, you know, we're talking about shows like The Americans, The Good Wife, Homeland, Transparent, How to Get Away with Murder, Scandal, Orange is the New Black. I mean, on and on and on. Shows that don't, you know, they borrowed stuff from those anti-hero shows, but they look really different. And that is great. And that is, I think, a huge part of having 400, you know, 300 plus 400 shows. At some point, you do have to give shows to people that wouldn't have necessarily like been in the club before. Do you see any downside to this to this burgeoning of, of TV in, in all directions, either in terms of, you know, the ability for people to find it, the, the thing that was at, at issue in this conversation, or, I don't know, just um, the draining of, of talents from, I don't know. I mean, what, is there anything wrong with the, with the peak TV model? I, I mean, I'm, What about the loss of a common conversation? I mean, I maybe say, there's the mon- no way the, to get that back. The monoculture. I miss the monoculture a little bit where everyone's watching exactly the same thing at exactly the same time and we're all going to talk about it. I was on a date recently and one was talking about how she loves Rectify and I was like, damn it, I, I haven't watched Rectify. I can't talk about this. In well, the past, I feel like, a, you know, whatever, any show she might have mentioned, I would have watched. And now that's not the case. Well, didn't didn't Dan Ingber write something for Slate about this, about how the, the, the conversation about television has become impossible because it's so splintered that you go to a dinner party and people are like huddled in a corner saying, don't spoil such and such. I mean, I think... So firstly, I'm glad that I presented this to you in such a calm manner that you think that personally I'm not horrified by there being 400 shows on all the time because personally I am horrified. Uh, It's just like a huge mountain of stuff. But I think, you know, the thing about the monoculture and this, this idea comes up again and again and again is that there is an extent to which social media, not to make it the cultural bugaboo that it always is, makes it seem like there's a monoculture when there's not. So it's not like you cannot find people to lose their minds about True Detective or Mr. Robot or Serial. And and in our in your sort of rarefied corner of the Internet or our sort of rarefied corner of the Internet, there are a lot of people having a conversation about these shows that seem really buzzy at the same time. And if you want to be in the part of that conversation where there's dozens of pieces written on the Internet every day about it and really sort of fertile conversation... It's not that hard to find that show that is the show of the moment. It's really like the other pretty good shows that in the past a lot of people would have watched and you might have been able to find someone to chat with you about Manhattan, you know, which is the show about the Manhattan Project that's pretty good or The Divide, the show on We, you know, like those are pretty good shows that haven't risen to the level of Unreal or Mr. Robot or True Detective. So then you, you know, then you're sort of all alone. You feel alone in your watching then. I do find one upshot is that I'm much pickier and those like pretty good shows just don't cut it for anything. So I started to watch Bloodline, um, right. which is like 
high production values, interesting setting in Florida. I love Linda Cardellini. I love Coach Taylor. I was excited for it. And a couple, it was, it was a pretty good show. But after a couple episodes, I was like, this is just a pretty good show. And I feel like I, there's like a lot of other options out there. I'm going to give up on that. I can't watch another 11 hours of this when it's just pretty good. Totally. I mean, I think one of the things that's also, and I don't know if this is bad, but different, is that what this huge amount of TV does, and we're sort of touching on this, is it lends itself to thinking of TV as a, a place for anxiety, right? Like, uh, you can have cultural anxiety about all the TV you're missing, which is so not the function of television like when we were all growing up, right? TV was the thing you didn't ever have to be worried that you were missing. You should be happy you were missing it. Your parents were happy you were missing it. You were refreshing your brain, you know? And now it's just become another, it's become maybe almost the preeminent cultural object about what you should feel you you say sorry you hadn't seen Mad Men I'm so sorry I haven't watched Mad Men you know people say that to me all the time or or The Wire or something like that and I'm not sure that's not a good or a bad thing I mean that's sort of talking about TV's sort of preeminence in our cultural right now but I think I wish people didn't feel guilty about TV. <laughs> if I can just speak for myself, I refuse to enter that zone. That is just ridiculous. I mean, not just with TV, but in general, the speed with which cultural objects are, are flying at everyone who's at all, you know, linked up to the Internet or trying to follow anything about popular culture. Forget it. You know, I mean, if I'm six years late, I could I could care less. You speak with the voice of sanity. <laughs> I hold the wisdom stick. All right. Well, please come to our Facebook page and tell us, have we reached peak TV and how do you decide what you're going to see, besides, of course, reading the estimable Willa Paskin on Slate. And that page, of course, is facebook.com slash culturefest. And now it's time to interrupt the Slate Culture Gab Fest for a moment for our first sponsor this week, which is Warby Parker. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty objective to create boutique-quality, classically-crafted eyewear at a revolutionary price. Glasses start at $95, and their titanium collection starts at $145, including the prescription lenses. And all their glasses include anti-reflective and anti-glare coating. Before I go on describing Warby Parker's high points, Seth, I'm going to throw over to you because you, I believe, are wearing Warby Parker glasses right now. I am wearing a pair of tortoiseshell Warby Parker glasses They're right most now. becoming. I think we should post a picture of them to the Facebook page. <laughs> and uh, can you tell us some of their attributes? Why did you choose Warby Parker for your glasses? To be honest, I used to go in and get glasses. And I felt like every time I would come away having spent like $450 on glasses and not love the glasses. And these were 99 bucks, and I really like them. And it was a super easy process to go order on the web and they would they sent me like five pairs that I could try on in the comfort of my own home and see which one I like best and I, and I sent back the other four kept the one I liked I've been very happy with them so far so uh, good stuff and that's your first time using Warby Parker for your glasses? <laughs> it is my first time using them, but I would use them again. You know, the reason I should use them is that I lose my glasses constantly. I would say I, a pair of glasses lasts me about three weeks before I lose it, especially now that I have reading glasses and regular glasses. So maybe I should order from Warby Parker just so I can just keep them coming, just steady stream to the door just and afford like it. an auto order program, a bot that just orders you glasses every three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The truck just pulls up, you know, discharges its load, and I start losing them immediately. So if you want to be like Seth and have very comfortable and flattering glasses at a low price, go to Warby Parker. They make buying those glasses online easy and risk-free. And as Seth mentioned, you can get five pairs shipped to your house and keep them for five days, showing them thereby to all your family and friends and getting their opinion before you send them back free of charge using the prepaid return shipping label. So you can go to warbyparker.com cultural to choose your five free home try-on frames, send them back when you wish, and keep the ones you like. All right, time for our next topic. Documentary Now is a new mockumentary comedy series that premiered on IFC 
a few weeks ago. There have been three episodes so far, I believe. And uh, the story of this show, you guys can help me um, kind of parse it out, is that it's, it's written by Seth Meyers, Fred Armisen, Bill Hader, among others. I guess those would be the big names. And stars Hader and Armisen in changing roles each week. And the premise of the show is that for 25 minutes, you get a, a parody of a known documentary or documentary style. So far, they've parodied uh, essentially the, the Robert Flaherty's Nanak of the North, right, in one episode. They also did um, the Maisel's Brothers' Grey Gardens. And uh, and then they did a sort of um, genre parody of a Vice episode, essentially an episode of, the, of Vice's HBO show, which we've talked about here on the GabFest, and I thought they really nailed the absurdity of that one. Let's listen to a clip from that show in which Fred Armisen and Bill Hader play two roving Vice reporters heading to Juarez, Mexico, to investigate the drug trade. We were ready to turn Juarez upside down to find El Chigón. El Chigón! Chigón, where are you? El Chigón, where are you? But, as it turns out, tracking down the most wanted man in Mexico wasn't as easy as you might think. Sabes or conoces un hombre que se llame El Chigón? Luckily, we got hooked up with a local professoro who had some sweet insider information. Because knowledge is power. Thanks for having us. Hi, how are you? We're drones. Hope you don't mind our camera guy. It's Chris. Everybody knows El Chingon lives somewhere in the foothills of Salves. That is why it's called the Salves Cartel. Oh, Salves Cartel. Okay. You, you reported you knew that already, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. No, the yeah, foothills. We yeah, we... Salves. You know, Salves yeah. and the foothills. Let's go. So if we just get... A, no, 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 wait. Promise me, do not go there. Even the police do not go to Salves. Because... Because if you go there, you will die. These guys don't play around. But wait they a minute. Will, especially with a camera. They won't even ask any questions. You the, will be killed. But that's the key. We do ask questions. Okay, so you shouldn't go there then. Foothills and Salvez. All right. Promise me you will not go there. We promise we won't go. And of course, the next shot you see is the two of them plodding through the <laughs> Salvez foothills on their way to the, the deadly drug Kingpin's Lair. So I want to hear what you guys thought of this show, which of the three that have aired so far are your favorite, and also what you think in general of the idea of parodying famous documentaries in a comedy format. It's a very unusual premise for a show. It is a very unusual premise. I think, you know, there's something about a spoof that, what is the difference between a satire and a spoof, right? Like a spoof is a satire that has an object that is not important or, or not essential or not super pressing to the conversation. I guess. I mean, to me, spoof, yeah, usually it usually designates something a little more affectionate, right? It doesn't necessarily have a lot of social import. And also, it's very genre-focused. I feel like a spoof is, is, is always making jokes about the form itself, right? right? So this year, we have this spoof of these three different documentaries. But I found... I thought the episodes got better and better because the first one is about Grey Gardens, the second one is about Nanook of the North, and the third is about Vice. And I actually found the first one, which is the send-up of Grey Gardens, to be almost... Like, it didn't know what the point of its satire or its its teasing was because it essentially just, in it, you know, it sends up the Beals, Little Edie and Big Edie, and they become Little Vivi and Big Vivi. And it kind of, it's just making fun of them, essentially. I thought, that the like, it's making fun of their weirdness, which is a, a kind of a weird approach to Grey Gardens to sort of take 
the Beals and be like, oh, look at these weirdos. Like, let's laugh about them. They're already beyond parody, right? They're already their own spoof of themselves, kind of. And so it is strange for them. They can't make it any weirder or funnier than it already was. And also, I mean, HBO actually remade Grey Gardens with Jessica Lange and Drew Barrymore. They already did, like, the ED drag. And now you're getting Bill Hader and Fred Armisen putting on the ED drag again. And it's not, it's less, it's actually, like, less weird and funny than the the original. Yeah, the Grey Gardens is the least successful and I think it is because that it, that's a very complex movie to try and, and spoof. I mean, I, I, it is an extremely affectionate homage to Grey Gardens. I think you can really tell that they, they love that movie and they love the Beals. And in particular, Bill Hader as Vivi, the, the, the faux E.D. Beale character, gives a performance that's almost dramatic, that has a kind of a tragic element. It doesn't quite fit into the, the cute spoofiness of this little half-hour format. But some of the scenes where he's prancing around with his little American flag doing an, an E.D. dance were kind of moving. Generally speaking, the detail of all of the spoofs was like so on spot on and amazing that you knew that they loved it. Like even um, I think in the Nanook of the North spoof, like the color of the screen behind the title of the documentary they were doing was like this bizarro 80s color. Like you've just never it was so PBS in the 80s. I was like, someone has thought so hard about this exact right Right. Or, the, or the Janus Films logo, which they spoof with Talus Films. And they have this thing, I guess the, really the way that this the parody on this show works or the spoofing is is that it's almost a copy. There's there's a, a sense of like, we're going to make a simulacrum, but just twist it very slightly. So, for example, the, there's a joke at the end of, of two of them, right? There are two that have a sort of plot twist, and I won't give away what they are, but the, the Grey Gardens turns into a completely different kind of movie, mini movie than the original. And the Nanak of the North actually has, I think, a, a great twist that makes the, the what we we might call the kind of very dated ethnography of the original Nanak of the North into a joke on the ethnographer rather than on the Inuit people that he's filming. Yeah, I thought the Nanak of the North one was my favorite, actually. And for the, you know, it starts out and it seems like it's going to kind of have all these problematic ethnographic issues, as you said. And then it really pivots into this place where it sort of it, it becomes a sort of set up not only of the format of that documentary, but also of all of Hollywood and like how we were birthed the ridiculous Hollywood system where you get, you know, producer credits just for like hanging out with the with the gang. There are a lot of great jokes. And, and uh, I read one review that pointed out that Bill Hader really disappears into the characters, whereas Fred Armisen is just Fred Armisen <laughs> over and over again. And it works. And that pairing is, is great. And Bill Hader particularly is amazing in this, I think. By far, my favorite, though, is the one that parodies Vice. Um, and that's where they are with an organization called Drones with a Z, which is <laughs> yeah. this, which is this like, gonzo <laughs> where, documentary. Where their motto is, we have our balls with a Z to the walls with a Z. <laughs> exactly. And it is such a dead-on parody of a Vice, of those Vice uh, docs, where like somehow at the end of it, you haven't learned anything at all, but you've seen a lot of footage of people shooting machine guns and dead bodies and explosions. And this is like this, uh, all those documentaries feel to me like they're like, check this out. It's fucked up. <laughs> like, yeah. That's basically what those are. Also, and, speaking of acting hater in his three iterations of a hipster reporter, each one was better than the next. Like I was like, I kn- that guy, that guy. Subtle gradations of hipster. If you, and if you watch the actual you know, the original document, the real Vice documentaries, there are scenes where reporters like try the cocaine that the narco traffickers put out in front of them and are like, yeah, that's really strong. <laughs> or, or like scenes where people are watching, people get shot with tear gas and go like, oh shit, oh shit. <laughs> it's like, are you, are you a journalist? What's happening right now? But the yeah, they though- convey that self-satisfaction, too, of those reporters who are just so impressed that they're in a cool drug a ton, drugs tons of milieu footage in Juarez. The, tons of footage of the attractive correspondents on camera. With lots of through. split screen and kind of you know, like jazzy camera effects. I think that one was also the best because it had the most 
meaty like target. You know, Vice is the most ridiculous and the most and the most pressing. You know, yeah. the most contemporary and the way of like of them being you know going into these dangerous locations and sort of expecting to be patted on the back for having the balls to do the investigative reporting everyone else is too scared to do and ending up in all these sort of morally and ethically totally dubious situations at the you know to give us totally garbage information basically is really is like a really live issue and and and, the, and then and setups obvious i mean spoofs of or satires or parodies of gray gardens and a nook of the north are sort of for obvious reasons like less urgent so much less so that i i wonder what the intended audience for this is i completely agree that the vice is by far the most you know it's kind of the most vibrant and alive feeling because it's it's spoofing something that's going on right now i mean as a film nerd like it's it's kind of cute to see these these parodies of these classic movies but how big of an audience is there going to be for a gray gardens nanook of the north parody but this is this is why this actually circles back to the conversation we we're just having about 400 scripted shows it's like Somebody you out there. Four hundred scripted shows, and Bill Hader and Seth Meyers and Fred Armisen are this fun, cute thing they want to do for you. You're like, great, sure, do it on our network. Sure, in the age of peak TV, why not? Yeah. I mean, these these probably could have been five minute sketches, but I, I did not mind sitting through them for the twenty eight totally. or whatever minutes it was. That the like the use of the different film stocks, the production values, it's good fun. I liked them so much better than I was expecting. Like I was expecting to be like, this is pretty tedious, over long Saturday Night Live sketch. And I thought they they were just sort of they they earned their length. What I'm looking... I think they could have done two per show, personally. <laughs> I, I felt like I, I myself could have taken the scissors to the Grey Gardens one, yeah. for example. It was sort of the same joke over yeah. and over. It was pretty baggy. I am looking forward to which documentaries they will spoof next. I'm, th- I'm expecting like a Morgan Spurlock style one. I'm expecting Ooh. maybe Roger Moore style crusading documentary. And then, you know, like maybe a front line. Well, there may be a chance to see them parody a lot more. Every possible documentarian you can think of because apparently they've been picked up for two more seasons already. So so there's going to be, what, 18 of these shows altogether. <laughs> so, Every documentary that people are familiar with will be lovingly treated. They're going to be digging deep by the yeah. end of it, I swear. Well, before we wrap this topic, I'd like to know, do you have a particular documentary that's dear to your heart that you'd like to see Armisen and Hayter take on in a future show? I mean, I, I would be amused to watch them do, like, Spellbound or Mad Hot Ballroom, where they're just playing adorable, precocious <laughs> yeah. children. Learning some very special task. Slapping some braces on. All right, I'm going to put a word in for the Werner Herzog documentary model. But I think the only way to spoof that might be to get Herzog himself to do the voiceover and just write it for him. Yeah, totally. I mean, you could take almost straight Herzog narration and it would sound like a spoof. And if you didn't know. You'd also have to find his particular way of, you know, locating oddballs. I think if they could, you know, Armisen and Hayter could really play a lot of different kinds of oddballs. And that is kind of his specialty is finding someone to interview who just has the strangest perspective yeah. possible on whatever he's covering. Now that you say it, like there's no way Grizzly Man does not end up on another season of the show. My favorite documentary is Hands on a Hard Body, but I don't know if you could really spoof that. It's it, the, the characters themselves are all, all kind of like Grey Gardens. The characters are so sui generis that like I don't know that it's worth even spoofing them. I am thrilled to hear that they're going to do Earl Morris because I can't wait to see how they treat the slow motion milkshake throw from <laughs> out of the police car, which is my favorite part of Thin Blue Line, where the milkshake flies through the air and lands on the pavement. And I'm sure they will have that, you know, in super slow-mo for like 30 minutes. <laughs> Just like that's the whole show. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, the show, again, is Documentary Now on IFC. You can also, I believe, see at least the first three episodes online at this point. So uh, go watch it. Tell us what you think and tell us what documentary Hayter and Armisen should take on next. All right. So before we move on to our third topic, let's have a word from our second sponsor this week, which is Harry's Razors. And the question is, Seth. 
when did shaving get so expensive and so difficult? As Steve has recounted at agonizing length before on the show, you have to go to a drugstore. You have to face a locked lucite wall of products. You have to ask the person at the drugstore to unlock it for you, examine the various razors, take them home, curse them in your inevitable disappointment and hurl them into the trash. But Harry's has come to the rescue. How? Yeah, at the, at the drugstore, I feel like the only things that get locked up are like the Vicodin and like the, the razor cartridges. <laughs> yeah. They must be the most expensive product per volume the, in the, in the, the entire drugstore. It's the ones that people steal. And yeah. the pseudoepinephrine or whatever it's called, right? <laughs> Which they now the take completely the off the market because it was too dangerous. Yes, it would be much easier to find a way to just have them arrive in your home without having to go to the drugstore and sit there patiently for the cabinet to be unlocked. It would be nice if the razors could just arrive at your house and then, you know, you would have them. Perhaps even with some cream along with them. That would be great, too. Well, if we had Steve here with us, I'm sure that we would be now treated to an extensive soliloquy on the exact texture and scent of the shave cream or the foaming shave gel that comes with your razor. And he could tell us which he chooses or maybe he switches back and forth just to change it up. But until we have Stephen back next week, we'll leave Seth alone with his glasses and his smooth cheeks and say that as an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase using the promo code, again, CULTURE. With that code, you can get a whole month's worth of shaving materials for just $10. So if you want to get that deal, go to harrys.com now and type in the promo code CULTURE. Start shaving smarter today. All right, so for our third segment today, we are going to talk about design and typeface, um, which is something we don't take on often enough. It's really, really fun to talk about, I think. Joining us for this segment only is Will Oremus, Slate's technology correspondent. Hey, Will. Hey. So maybe you can walk us through the redesign of the Google logo. It's been redesigned for the first time since 1999. Uh, it's got a new but similar but importantly different look, and, uh, and you've written a bit about it. Can you talk us through that some? I will do my best. I'm not an expert on typefaces, I should say at the outset, but... I can tell you that what happened was Google had its classic multicolored logo for all these years, and then out of the blue, it decided to change it. It dropped the serifs from the font. So it's now a sans serif font. It looks a little more childish, a little more simple. It's still the word Google. It's still the same colors, but it just looks like, it kind of looks like something that a kid would draw with a crayon on a chalkboard, I guess with four different crayons, right? Because there's the red, yellow, blue, and green. And it's, I think it's meant to signal that something is new at Google. It's part of this big change uh, at the company where the old Google became Alphabet, and now Google is just a division within Alphabet. And can you say what Alphabet is? I mean, what do you mean the old Google became Alphabet? If I could say what Alphabet is, I, I would have investors beating down my door. Uh, nobody can say exactly what Alphabet is, but, but the short version is that Alphabet is what Google used to be. Alphabet is now the holding company that encompasses both Google proper and all those crazy moonshot businesses that Google also does, the things like the self-driving cars and the hot air balloons that beam internet to poor villages. Uh, it's basically uh, sort of like if people have compared it to Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. It's a little like that, except if Berkshire Hathaway was one company that made tons of money and then a bunch of money-losing ventures that were meant to change the world. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to the logo. I want to hear what you guys think of this design and, and how you feel about serifs and the lack of serifs and, and about letters and type in general. Well, as a hater of change, which is like makes me like everybody else who sees logo changes, I think initially, I was like, this looks so silly. And I was really, really tortured by the loss of the little G. That typewriter G is so cute and so ridiculous and you can't make it yourself. And 
I'm you mean the G, but the, with the, the second the T, G. with the two, yeah, with the two a, round, the two rounds and the squiggly line. It's called a binocular it. G. A binocular, even cuter. <laughs> How could you murder that G? And they went and murdered that G. I mean, I'm sure, as with all logos, like I'll get used to it, and and very soon I'll forgotten the other one and never think about it. I do think the um. You know, the thing you see more even than the homepage Google is the G that's in the little square that's on that's on your iPhone or, you know, the app. The logo. thumbnail G. The thumbnail G, exactly. That's on if you have a web page app. And that one being those four colors, I actually also find it makes it more like a pinwheel, um, like the, the thing that's like buffering kind of. Uh, I'm not a, a great fan of that either. But again, you know, Google's Google and I they will win me over. The attrition. idea of taking the serifs off, I think this is right, Will, right, is that is that, um, is that it has to render on all devices. They want to make this seeable and visible on any platform and that those the, the more intricate, old-fashioned kind of letters that, you know, were sort of, to me, interesting precisely because they, they called back to the early ages of type, right, even though it was on this very clean white page with the rainbow colors and that was all modern, the type itself seemed like a kind of a callback to the Gutenberg era, right? And that is gone now. They've kind of embraced modernity in this chunky sans-serif font. Yeah, it was classic. It was a logo type. It was like it was I, I, I had to do a little research on logos and, and typefaces when I was writing about it. And what I learned was that in the sort of like typefaces for dummies article that I read is that serif fonts say traditional and classic uh, and sans serif fonts say modern and simple and clean. And so I think that's part of what Google was going for. Uh, when they changed it. I think, you know, the, the I hate change response is you're, you're definitely not alone. Well, <laughs> I think I think that was probably the overwhelming response. But actually, I think the, the, the outcry was less than you would expect when a company, a company like that changes its logo. It was actually somewhat muted, which makes me think that really deep down, everybody sort of likes it. And it's just going to take us a little bit to get used to it. I have that a question. E, oh, that slanty little E doing a cute sort of little nod is really embarrassing. Tipping its hat. So we're, we're in a sans serif age. I think, you know, for me, the big sans serif moment was the 2008 Obama campaign where they went to Gotham and suddenly that Gotham font and pe- people were writing articles saying that the Gotham font had won the election for Obama. Hillary had this sort of dowdy serif font and Kerry in 2004 had this dowdy serif font. And so we're in a sans serif moment. But isn't design in a lot of ways, you sort of hinted this, it's like it's zigging when everyone else is zagging. The way to stand out is to be doing the thing that everyone else is not doing. So, and I also think, you know, there's some of this discussion has been about readability with the sans serif, but my favorite news app is the NYT Now, the New York Times news app, and it uses serif fonts and it's completely readable to me on my phone. So I don't think necessarily we need to ditch our serifs. Well, I think that the, the common thinking in design and typeface design about serifs and the lack of serifs is that I think it's been fairly proven in market research that reading a long text is easier when you're reading a serif font. I don't know if that's because your eye stops more and moves slower. I don't know why, but I think that that's more suitable to reading an entire text, whereas branding, right, and single word logos tend to be more quickly visible and quickly readable without the serifs. It's rather funny that these little hooks at the end of letters would slow down your eye in any significant way. But yeah, they kind of hook you in. Also, do you know the origin, supposed origin of of serifs? It's it's very disputed. Nobody knows where the word comes from. There's debate about what language it originated in, the word serif. But the, uh, the actual little stops at the end of the letters apparently came from uh, carving letters, you know, like on a Roman plaque or something, right? When you're doing a carving and you reach the end of a line, there might be this moment where you stop and there's sort of, you know, a bit of, of dust or it goes in the wrong direction or something. And sort of to finish those ends and make the letter look more finished, they would sort of carve these little little hooks or stops or how, balls or whatever onto how them. How dare Google get rid of that? <laughs> right. It's a throwback. <laughs> Talk about a skeuomorph. Will you use that word in your post? Can you briefly define what a skeuomorph is? It's something that is that intentionally looks like something else archaic. 
that was probably a, a bad definition. Uh, there was a lot of talk about skeuomorphism in Apple's design with the iPhone when they had like the Notes app that looks like a yellow legal pad. Which I miss. Yeah, that was very skeuomorphic. And I miss all that stuff. Although, you know, they, you can never completely get rid of that stuff. If you look at, you know, um, uh, the prompt to, to write something, you know, on Twitter or on any platform that's based on writing, you'll often see like little quill pen, right? Twitter still uses that. That seems extremely skeuomorphic. I don't think you can completely get rid of that stuff because writing has a history. I did. I was really interested Will, how you talked about the logo being animated and how that's going to increasingly be a big thing. That seems like a jump forward, the the logo that jumps to life in front of you. Yeah, so the new Google logo doesn't just sit there. It actually does stuff, which seems like it could be really annoying. But maybe in Google's case, it won't be so bad. So what it does is, let's say you're doing a voice search. Google wants us all to search by voice now, like we're in Star Trek. Uh, The Google logo will actually dissolve into these little dots that are the constituent colors of the logo. The dots will do a little dance, and then they will go in sort of a wave formation, like an equalizer, as they're listening to your voice to sort of show you that they're listening. And then once they've heard you, they'll go into a little circle and spin in a circle for a bit to show that they're processing. And then they'll reform into the Google logo and spit out your, your answer. So there's actually there's some functionality built into the logo itself now, and it's an animated logo. And I think we're going to see a lot more of those, and I think it's going to be horrible. Do you think that that's related to, like, GIF culture? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the the logo often appears in GIF form, and so it can do a little animation in a loop. And I think I think we will see a lot of that. Didn't we learn our lesson with Clippy? Didn't we learn never to let our these little things jump around in front of us? All lessons learned are temporary. Well, if nothing else, you've taught us the word binocular G, which is something I didn't know until until going into this conversation. But I have an important question, Will, about the the future of the Google homepage, which is the Google Doodle is not going anywhere, is it? Their their tradition of having sort of a daily a, da- a changed logo every day for some event associated with the day. Yeah, the Google Doodle is not going anywhere. The binocular G is dead and gone. We can mourn it. Uh, Seth, you mentioned that the NYT Now app looks beautiful on mobile. I agree with you. I think serif fonts do look great on your phone. But what about if you had an Android Wear watch? I would never have that. (laughs) (laughs) That is probably the best solution to that problem. I think before we wrap this segment, we should maybe speak to those listeners out there who are saying, why should I care that the six rainbow-colored letters that make up the brand of this search engine have changed their design? So, I mean, do any of you, Seth, you've also written on branding and design and things like that in the past. Do any of you want to speak to the future of branding and what this this particular change might say about it? Yeah, I, I'm going to need one of you guys to tell me that, too. I, I, wrote, I wrote a story two weeks ago about Google changing into Alphabet and the whole restructuring of the company that I thought was really fascinating, and nobody really read it or cared. I wrote this little blog post about the font change, and I've gotten so many inquiries about that. I was on a, you know, a radio show just this morning uh, being asked to talk about it. Why do we care so much about the, about the change of a typeface? Well, we, particularly with Google, we have to look at this thing every day, right? I mean, I Google something probably five to ten times a day, and I am forced to look at this, and it becomes a part of my life. It's almost like a little friend, and when it changes, it's disruptive to us. I think it's mostly true of products that um, we use all the time or look at all the time. And when they change, like you said, Willa, we're not comfortable with that. But what happens is people just get used to it and then the, the outrage goes away. I mean, although I will say, I still light a candle for the original Slate logo. It was the spindly Slate word mark that, was, that looked more handcrafted and less like it had been designed on a computer. And I miss it. And I, I lobby frequently to bring it back and get rid of the current Slate logo. Well, also the thing that's interesting about this is that like not only in a very shortly will we not care that Google has repurposed their logo or most people. We probably won't 
really remember what the old logo even looked like unless it was in front of your face. It's like this, it's just another piece of ephemera about which one has momentary, very, very strong feelings. Well, and if you look, if you lay out, like, say, the Shell logo or the McDonald's logo, things that have been around for decades and decades, and you see the evolution of them, the changes in retrospect are so small and subtle that you're like, how could anyone possibly have even noticed that that changed? But it, it is when you see something every day and it changes, you notice. Also, the thing that's cool about those when they lay them out is you can see actually that they did look more old fashioned and they do become sort of more sleek and futuristic or, or contemporary, you know. Or as then time revert goes on. And, and then they go to throwback and retro. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, you mentioned the Slate logo. Doesn't our new logo? The font actually looks a lot like the new Google logo. So we were ahead of the curve. Maybe we can stay ahead of the curve and be the ones to go back to the the spindly logo. I don't know. Can we work a binocular G into the Slate logo? <laughs> <laughs> Slate tag shall be the new name of the company. <laughs> I have one exception to cite to this. Uh, we all get used to it, and, and, and it, fl- it flies out of our mind that there's been a redesign. I have to say that every time I look at the the listings, the cultural listings in the New Yorker since they were redesigned, I get so depressed and sad, <laughs> and I miss the way they used to look so much, the elegant design of that part of the magazine and how it used to just make me think when I looked at what was going on around town. Even if I never do any of this stuff, I get to live in New York. This is so awesome. There was something just so... I don't know, elegant and welcoming about that old layout. And now that it's gotten in some subtle way more chunky and cramped and and less serif-y, I just don't feel like New York is as fun anymore. <laughs> it can change, that, those fonts can change the way there's. I have this browser extension called Timesify, which can take any web page and put it into the New York Times uh, font. And when you read things, I mean, everything somehow seems like it's got more authoritative voice when you put it in the New York Times font. It's amazing how those visuals change the way you feel about text. Absolutely. You know, the other question about the future of Google that I sometimes wonder, and this has nothing to do with typeface, but it does have to do with how that brand will influence the future of language, is how long will the verb to Google last? You know, I mean, hundreds of years from now, and maybe the company has completely morphed into some, something beyond alphabet, will we still say, I'm going to Google that? Well, you know, we're really just talking to like a chip in our brain that like immediately feeding <laughs> us information. Exactly. I mean, I just wonder, will it be condensed down to some smaller word? And we'll have to say, originally, the word was Google, named after a company founded in the 20th century, right? And now we just say goo. Well, <laughs> <laughs> if you figure it out, Dana, write it up and Xerox it for us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that took a minute. <laughs> And if, if, we, uh, if we're asking our questions to a hologram of some all-knowing being in the year 2150, maybe there will be a skeuomorphic design where they put like a little text box and blinking cursor in there just to, <laughs> to call back to the old days. Or an actual stone being carved, you know, the chisel being driven in. All right. Well, tell us what you think about the redesign of the Google logo and the future of the Internet at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Well, Will, thank you so much for joining us for this segment. I hope you'll come on again soon. Anytime. Thanks, Dana. So if you want to read Will Remus on Google's new logo, you can go to the Future Tense blog on Slate, and the post is titled, Google's new logo looks simple, it isn't. Well, that's it, guys. We've come to the part of the show where we endorse. So Stephen usually starts with me, but it feels strange to ask myself what I endorse. So I think I will go last, and I will just turn to my right and ask you, Willa, what's your endorsement this week? I'm going to make an endorsement for what's going to sound like the teeny bopper's choice. And maybe it is. I might be a teeny bopper. But uh, for Carly Rae Jepsen's new record called E-Motion, um, there has like dots between those letters. Uh, and it's uh, wonderful 80s pop melodies. It's a great record. It's really like summary. The first single starts with a, like the first single, the first song on the record starts with the 
sounds of a saxophone, and it really only takes off from there. Rock me. saxophone. Oh, yeah. I mean, me at 80s pop melodies. Totally. It's really, really good. It, it is probably does not have a single as catchy as Call Me Maybe on it, but it is a kind of better. It's a, it's a real album, you know? She's an album artist now, Carly Rae. Is that her first full album? <laughs> she had, no. She, I, I was teasing because obviously her, her first record was only had the single, and then she had a second record that was actually pretty good, but people were not ready to be over Call Me Maybe yet, and now, and now maybe they're ready. This one's full of deep cuts. It's full of deep cuts, yeah. It's, it rewards long and deep listening. All right, Carly Rae, Emotion. And what about you, Seth? So since we've been talking about Peak TV, I'm going to give you yet another show to watch. This is a recommendation from my sister who, who recommended it to me. She's been recommending it to me for years, and I finally took her up. And my sister watches more TV than everyone I know except for Slate's June Thomas. My sister once watched 100 episodes of BET's The Game in, like, a weekend. It's- I mean, you should also say your sister is, like, the reigning bachelor connoisseur it- of, like, maybe the eastern seaboard she is a two-time defending bachelor fantasy league champion <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's quite incredible anyway the show is i'm just baffled that there is a bachelor fantasy <laughs> oh, think, league and what oh, grounds many, do they compete on there are many bachelor fantasy leagues <laughs> and it's, it's it's picking which bachelorette or whatever is going to make it to the next round and then you get points for how many of your choices advance and then at the end you win so the show that my sister has been recommending me for years that i finally take a run is called kid nation which is a reality show from 2007 in which 40 kids were bussed into an abandoned ghost town in New Mexico and forced to form a community together, Lord of the Fly style. They were ages 8 to 15, and apparent, and I've just started it, but already it's pretty great, and I've heard that things are going to go horribly awry very quickly. Some kids drink bleach, some girl burns her face with hot grease. It, <laughs> it sounds like just a crazy, they, they work like 14-hour days in this ghost town. Eventually there's looting. It just sounds like an amazing document. It was canceled very quickly I as remember. the drinking bleach Incident. I remember the moral outrage about it. I never saw a minute of the show, but it was really decried when it came out. (laughs) I think it's probably not going to be actually as morally outrageous as um, you suspect. And in fact, it will be like a kind of awesome reality show. Well, Kid Nation, I have spotted it available for free on YouTube. So, And you can feel safe that there are a limited number of episodes since it's now eight years old. So there's not more coming. So if you feel overwhelmed by your TV choices, this is, you know, there's a there's a light at the end of this tunnel. Kid Nation. Kid Nation. All right. I like both of these so far. We're really kicking it with the highbrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, In I, Steve's absence. I decided. am slightly upping the brow with my with my endorsement, although I didn't intend necessarily to go highbrow. My endorsement came up while I was researching the, the Google segment, our third segment in this week's show, which our intern provided some wonderfully handy links for. And I was really diving deep into the history of fonts and typefaces and type design. And I was thinking about the, the font that I like to use the most when I write, which is Palatino, a, a very serify, kind of old-fashioned, elegant-looking font. And I started reading about the designer of Palatino, Herman Zapf, who you may recognize from the, the Zapf dingbats. Remember those um, those little, little I don't know what you call them, funny icons on the old, old Mac? They were named after Herman Zapf, who's this German type designer from between the two wars. And so I started reading about him. He had a fascinating life story. He left Germany because of the war and then eventually went back and sort of designed some of the most legendary typefaces in between. He was also married to another typeface designer. And, uh, and there's this little film about Herman Zapf that's so wonderful that I have happened to come across on Vimeo. It was made by Hallmark Cards. And uh, and this is basically a little 18-minute long film about his calligraphy. And it's just it's almost completely close-ups of him writing while talking about typeface design, writing, using German pens. You know, it's almost sort of in between a how-to do calligraphy, and here are the tools that I use, and then just a meditative 
exploration with, you know, some sort of classical guitar playing in the background of this hand making these impossibly beautiful letters that seem like they have to be coming out of uh, some sort of print. You just can't believe that somebody's making them right in front of you. And in the process, he talks a bit about serifs and the loss of serifs and, you know, other details in the history of type and, and where they come from. So uh, it's highly recommended. It's called The Art of Herman Zapf, and uh, you can watch it for free on Vimeo. It may be in other places as well. But it's worth 18 minutes of your time, and it puts you in this nice state of mind where you just want to go get a broad nibbed pen and start making beautiful letters. When do I not feel like that? <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. This was a delight. I missed Julia and Steve this week, but you guys filled their spots so naturally that it's a great conversation anyway. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Dana. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Anne Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and the Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out their entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Willa Paskin and Seth Stevenson, I'm Dana Stevens. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.